Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hello and thank you for inviting me into your home or workplace or wherever it is you are listening to me talk this week uh, for uh, a more answers to more questions. We had a really interesting podcast this week, and the reactions to it have been all over the spectrum uh, in terms of the first 24 hours of comments from, this is one of the best interviews I've ever seen, Chris, this is a wonderful podcast, to, um, you know, Trump hasn't been, is not our president anymore, why are you harping on this, get on with your Scientology stuff, Danny Masterson's case is much more important, blah, 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 blah. Um, it is interesting to see the disparity of, of uh, feedback between Americans versus Europeans or non-Americans. Uh, that's, that's, an inter- that's something I've noted. Anyway, I'm just commenting on it because I had a politician, a real live political pundit, and somebody who is my political opposite in almost every way, Joe Walsh. He was a uh, congressman and a House of Representatives member. And um, he has been a national, uh, nationally syndicated talk radio host, and uh, he actually lost his show this last week because of his stance on Trump. And he's uh, still deeply conservative and, in fact, is, was a Tea Party conservative. So those of you who have been, um, you know, saying I should get people on who disagree, who I don't, you know, who, who I can't find, you know, agreement with or something, and I always kind of think that that's an interesting thing to want because I find I can find something to agree with with almost anybody and that's what I seek to do I don't look for our differences I look for our similarities because I think those are more important and I think we can build a relationship on those as opposed to this toxic let's all fight and call it a debate even though it's really you know hardly that So I, you know, so I'm not, I don't have a problem with talking to people who actively disagree with me. I I seek that out on my call-in show every week. But it's funny how people who call in and have positions that are different from mine, I can still have a civil conversation with them and find things that we can agree on and points that, um, that we can, you know, agree maybe we could move forward on. And I think that's a productive conversation. I think that's useful. So that's what I tried to do with Joe, and it seemed to work. And we had all kinds of things we agreed on, even though politically speaking, I, I just don't think there's a single thing I could, I could agree with him on. So I did my level best to try to ask him, uh, you know, sharp and relevant questions. And we talked about cultic behavior, and we talked about how things are going right now. And I think this is pretty relevant stuff to what's going on in America. Um, and I get that, you know, politics isn't everybody's thing, but if you're into cult thinking and you're watching me because you're interested in what Scientology and cults and all that have anything to, to do with, then I, I can't not talk about political matters. I just can't. It's, it's just not possible for me to do that. So, you know, if that really, really bothers you, I'm really sorry, but I, I just can't disconnect those two things because it's so obvious. It is such a great, politics is such a wonderful place to highlight and show up cultic behavior, cultic thinking, black and white thinking, us versus them, you know, the othering of people, the, um, the, even the rewards and punishment. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on. So, uh, so it's an area that I'm gonna just, I just have, I'm stuck with it. I, I can't not talk about it. And I want to talk about it at a level that it makes sense, that is insightful, that is useful, and that can inform. And so that's why I invite the people that I have on my show on. I had Matthew Sheffield on a couple weeks ago. I had Joe Walsh on this week. And um, and that's what's happening there. So I wanted to give a little more explanation there, maybe completely unnecessary. But I wanted to let you guys know what I was trying to do is I was trying to actually sort of model good behavior, show that it can be done, that we can reach across the aisle and have civil conversations with people that we radically disagree with. On almost every social issue or political issue there is to to be had, we can disagree, and yet we can still get along. And, you know, that's really important to me, uh, that, that, that that reality can exist, 
and I want to show that, and I want to show how it can be done. So that's um, that's another another reason I'm doing that, or another goal there. Agree with me or not, whatever. At least I just wanted to explain myself. So that all being said, we've got some pretty cool Scientology-related questions and other and otherwise uh, for this week. So let's go ahead and get on with them now. Bob Smith, it looks more and more like Danny Masterson will go to trial. Looking ahead, if he is convicted and sentenced to a lengthy prison stay, a few interesting questions come to mind. A, will he be able to practice Scientology in a California state prison? A rape conviction would likely see him assigned to a maximum security facility. B, does California allow Scientology prison chaplains? That brings all kinds of interesting questions to mind. C, how might Masterson fare in prison? A rape conviction can't create a very safe, let alone comfortable existence for any celebrity behind bars. D, is there any history showing how Scientologists are thought of or treated in prison? E, how would corporate Scientology react and respond to a high-profile celebrity member being convicted and sentenced to a lengthy sentence? Will they cast him off and try to disassociate from him? All right, Bob, thank you for all these questions. And um, I'm going to give you my very best conjecture and ideas based on my experience and knowledge uh, with Scientology. So first you asked, uh, will he be able to practice Scientology in, in prison? Well, sure. I mean, he could read books. He could do, you know, I mean, I, it, whether he'd be able to do auditing or not. No, that, that's never going to happen. That's not that's just not appropriate and wouldn't happen in prison at all. Um, so he's not going to really be going up the bridge or anything like that, nor would Scientology have any interest in auditing him or counseling or doing anything with him while he's in prison. Um, he's, you know, to, to, to jump to the, to the chase here in terms of what, what corporate Scientology is going to do, they're going to disown him like that. Um, it, however, there are some other mitigating factors, which I'll get to. So, um, does, you know, will they allow, does California allow Scientology chaplains? Probably. Yeah, I think they do. Um, you know, Danny Masterson is a half-rate, cut-rate Scientologist at best. He's never been a very good Scientologist. I don't think he's even gotten to clear, much less the OT levels. Uh, I think he was stuck on grade two, of all places, which deals with overts and withholds, which deals with sins. So isn't that interesting? That was the last place I knew he was at on the bridge. I could be wrong. Maybe he got up to clear, but... I don't think so. And um, and he hasn't really done a lot of Scientology services or otherwise in years, maybe over a decade. Uh, last time I knew for a fact he was actually doing Scientology services was like 2005. So, you know, now again, I'm not in a position where I'm going to know everything about that, but that is what I know. So, um, and I do know for a fact, even from when I was in Scientology, that he was a half-rate Scientologist. He was a celebrity, and he's very connected. And that is Danny Masterson's importance in Scientology. Is he is he is in a nexus of three clans of, of people. And Ortega, Tony Ortega's blog, he's he's written all this down, described all the the family. It's way too complicated for me to just kind of break down. You'd almost want a, a, a chart because. There's his mom and his dad and then his stepdad and his stepmom. I mean, there's just all these different people uh, connected with him. And they're all tightly into the church in some fashion. So um, so it's not Danny Masterson really can't be considered from the Church of Scientology's point of view. Masterson can't be looked at in a vacuum. It's not just him. There's all these other people around him that the church also has its claws into and has to deal with and has to keep happy. So, you know, his sister, his half-brother, his half-sister, his mother, right, all these different people. Um, so if the church does just, well, let's, let's go ahead and look at this. So how might Masterson fare in prison? Well, he's going to be fair as any other person in prison is. He's not going to be very closely connected. He's certainly not going to be protected. Scientology has nothing for him in prisons. Uh, there's nothing. There's no protection. There's no, you know, buying people off and all that. It doesn't work like that when you're in a maximum security prison, especially as a convict. So um, he, the fact that he comes from money and will have resources available to him and will probably have people willing to visit him or, or keep in communication with him, like his family, 
I don't think they're going to dump him if he gets convicted. I don't know about the church overall, but I don't think his family is just going to disown him. Maybe, maybe the church might actually direct in that direction. It's a little hard to say. It really is. It's a little unpredictable. But, um, I mean, per the church policy, he should have been cut off a long time ago. The church should not have ever had anything to do with any of this, according to the church's own policies. Yeah, they, they, they violate the church's own policies all the time when it comes to celebrities. The celebrities are always the exceptions to all these rules, and ter- even with shunning and disconnection. So... Um, But it's all a matter of, well, it's okay for this person, but it's not necessarily okay for this person. So it's all a matter of David Miscavige's whims, really, as to how this all works. And and he's a little hard to predict when it comes to this kind of thing. But the church policy I can speak to very clearly says, um, if you have a criminal on your hands, somebody who is guilty of criminal activity, this lifetime, provable, you know... um, convictable crimes, then he should not be or she should not be a Scientologist. They don't want it, they don't want that around. They don't want anything to do with that. And they will declare you what's called A to J, one of your one of your sources of trouble types. I think a criminal is type B. Um, you know, it's type A, type B, type C, type D, maybe type D, I don't remember. Um, and each of these types is a different source of trouble for the church, and a known active criminal is obviously one of those kinds. So the second that, you know, accusations are being made and, and you know, testimonials are being provided and reports are being written, the church should have been all over this in coordination with law enforcement. But they didn't do that. They chose to, you know, put a wall in, uh, shut everything down, force the women to not go to law enforcement, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as we've seen. So um, so this is why the church's hands are just as dirty as Masterson's on this. And this is why it makes it a little, that exposure makes their, my ability to predict what they're going to do a little shaky because, you know, this is a very, very touchy situation. And there might even be more to this that we don't even know about. The church might even be more legally exposed than we even suspect right now. So, um, so this is why my this is why I'm so hesitant to you know to be making too many solid predictions here, and I'm just kind of talking about the information and factors I know that are sort of at play here. Um, is there any history showing how Scientologists are thought of or treated in prison? No, not really. I mean, not a lot. Uh, uh, not that they're treated any. Any differently, I've never heard word one that a Scientologist was treated differently in prison because they were a Scientologist. Um, never seen any reporting on that or media on it, or and I never heard anything about it one way or the other. Um, so, you know, how, are they going to cast him off and try to disassociate from him? If he's convicted, yeah, I am sure that the church has to distance themselves from him. But here's the thing about that thing about Masterson not being in a vacuum is with so many other people involved in this, other celebrities um, that the church very much wants to keep happy and wants to, you know, uh, continue working with and keep as Scientologists. They're going to have to, you know, I don't know what the family is feeling right now. See, there's all kinds of information we don't have behind the scenes as to, you know, the family is publicly supporting him, showing up to the to the trial, to, to the hearing. Um, I guess, you know, there hasn't really been that I've seen yet a lot of uh, press response or comments to the press about it. So I don't know what Alana Masterson or Chris Masterson or these other, you know, family members actually are saying to the media, if anything, right now. But they seem to be showing support. If he's convicted, I think they'll. I don't think they'll believe it. I think they'll. I think they all think that all these women are lying, and this is just some big setup. And I think the church encourages that point of view uh, on their part. So um, I don't think. I don't. I, I know that it has been said, but I don't believe that all these people who are supporting Masterson in the church think that he actually did these things. I think that they resolve their cognitive dissonance on it by deciding that Masterson's innocent and these women are just getting a payday 
and are just working with Leah and they're just making everything up or making a bunch of stuff up or exaggerating, you know, um, their, their grievances. So that's, that's what I think those people are thinking. And so if he's convicted, I don't think they're going to change their mind about that. They're going to think he was railroaded. And therefore, I think they're going to still want the church to support Masterson even as a convict. And that's where I don't know what Miscavige is going to do or what the calculations are going to be that he's going to be thinking with as to how to keep these people happy and still ha- and what the public image is going to be. So a little complicated. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, kind of things in the air, a lot of, mo- a lot of, a lot of plates in the air here on this. So, or what, what, what's it? Plates spinning and balls in the air, <laughs> mixing my metaphors. All right. So, um, those are some thoughts on that. I hope that that gave you some more information, Bob, on, on all your questions there. Kevin Zay, I was wondering if you can offer your thoughts on dealing with friends or family members who may be getting themselves into a dangerous relationship, but are not aware of that possibility. I have a friend whose family member is set to marry someone who is all about strict biblical patriarchy and also displays narcissistic tendencies. My friend and I have both been down that road with a mutual ex-friend of ours who ended up almost killing his then-wife. She's tried expressing her concerns to her family, but they either seem to be ignoring her or think she's crazy. I thought you might have a unique perspective on this given your experience with highly controlling groups and people. Okay, Kevin, thank you very much for this question. And I'm just going to throw out some pieces of advice or suggestions I have as to how to basically try to set up the best possible conversation or dialogue that you can with the person in question. Okay, let's say you have this friend or family member and you're concerned. Um, your concerns may or may not be valid. That's the first thing. The first stuff you got to look at is your own. Okay, one, are you, are you sure? Are you, are you absolutely positive that what you're seeing or perceiving is 100% correct? Do you, can you corroborate it? Can you back it up? Um, do you have, uh, you know, dare I say, evidence um, of your suspicions, or is this just some gut feeling you have? These are important questions to answer for yourself before you even open your mouth. This is this is just critical thinking, skepticism, running it on yourself, right? Like, oh, I've got this idea, or I've got this observation, or series of observations, and they lead me to think. There might be a problem here. Well, write it all down for yourself. Really make sure you've got a case. Uh, Two, are you in a position and should you interfere with this person's life? This is actually a legit question, right? It's something you have to ask yourself. It's not just a matter of, well, am I being a busybody? But, you know, you're potentially looking at disrupting this person's life and relationships in a significant way. So, again, you better be sure. Okay. Um, and you better be sure that this is something you want to be responsible for. If it goes, if it were to go south, and things were to not go the way you predict they would go, how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to be responsible for that? What you know, what responsibility will you are you willing to take? These are the, again something you want to think about beforehand. Now, if you're in a place where you're absolutely positive that this person is a threat or potential threat to your friend or family, then of course you're going to want to act. Um, I mean, you know, most people are going to at least think the thought of wanting to act. And I think that if it's justified, you should, right? I I think you should, you know, think critically about it. But once you have and you've decided, then okay, move forward and let's do it effectively. In order to effectively talk to somebody in a situation like you've described, Kevin, you're talking about somebody who's in love, who, you know, is in this phase of this relationship where it is, uh, you know, fun, exciting, wonderful. They're looking at um, taking it to the next level, maybe, or um, you know, set to marry somebody who's you know who believes in strict biblical patriarchy. Yeah, I would definitely have a few questions for that person, you know, and for the relationship. And maybe the questions should be directed to the potential partner, too. I mean, maybe that's a way of kind of bringing it out and clearing the air and and asking some questions and finding out where they're really coming from. Because you don't want to engage in stereotyping, not when it comes to the context of one-on-one, when you're right there with a person and it's this guy, Joe, that you have questions about or you're not sure about. Well, why not have a conversation with Joe and see where he's at, see how he answers the questions at least, see how he responds. Does he get defensive? You know, is there... 
Um, are there other red flags popping up, right? Um, again, obviously, talk to him, you know, non-accusatively, you know, you know, bust in there and go, hey, man, you're a narcissist, and I don't like it, you know, that's not gonna, you know, obviously, not, let's not do that. Okay. Um, so in terms of talking to the friend or family member, though, make sure they are rested, make sure they're not like tired, drunk, high, inebriated, right? Make sure you're talking to somebody who's, whose wits are about them and who is in the most rational state of mind you can get them into. Okay, so fed, slept, right? just like with kids. I mean, adults aren't any different. And you want somebody who has full mental capacity when you're having this conversation with them. So, you know, so, so make sure that the, that the situation is such that they can have a calm, rational conversation. It's not some heated argument. Maybe it becomes a heated argument. And if it does, okay, you're going to have to deal with that. But let's not start it that way, right? Let's start with as, as rational and chill a place as we can. Everything you can do to keep the front lobes engaged, okay? That's what we're talking about here. So, let's, so, so that's just setting the scene and the environment to have the best possible conversation you can have. In terms of breaching the subject matter or talking about it, if you come from a place of concern and help, not overly concerned and not like, you know, some kind of syrupy, gross, fake stuff, but I mean, from a place of real concern, there's a, there, you have a relationship with this person, friend, family member. It's already established. They trust you. You trust them to some degree. You're going to build and use that trust in order to, you know, as a bridge to communicate your ideas to them. And you want to get them across in a safe way. So you cannot get them, have them on the defensive. You don't want to put them in that place. So you definitely want to get across that you are having a, you want to have this conversation or you want to have this, this discussion because you, um, you have some questions, you have some attention on some things, you're a little concerned maybe, but it comes from a place of honest wanting to really help. And, um, and so let's, you know, so do you mind if I ask some questions or we, we talk about this, you know, I've noted a few things and this is where you kind of prep your case beforehand. You don't go in willy nilly. You have to have a one, two, three, four, right? If you're going to think about it this way, what would it take to talk to you, right? About if you were falling in love with somebody or if you were establishing a relationship with somebody or you were moving forward and you and your friends or family were concerned, how should they approach you? Think, think that through a little bit and that will inform how you maybe should be talking to your friend or family member, right? Um, it, respect, dignity, right? You want to grant that to this person that they are intelligent and rational and can make up their own minds, about their lives and about their relationships, right? You want to grant them that. You don't want to come across heavy or you don't want to come across like you know best or you've seen this and they're not seeing it and you're going to set them straight. You don't want, mm -mm, right? Don't go, don't go down that road. Um, and then just present the case as best you can. Now, if that direct approach is absolutely positively just not going to work, just you just know either you're not going to be able to do it or you know, or it's just not going to work no matter who does it. Okay, fair enough. If a direct frontal assault or a direct honest conversation isn't going to fly, then you're going to have to take an indirect approach and that's going to be context specific to the person as to how you best do that. You you know them better than I do. But the approach would be um, if it's going to be an indirect approach, then it's going to be Using maybe the strategy or the tactic of, um, you know how when we are concerned about somebody who's in a cult, we tell them about another cult? We don't tell them about, you know, if I'm talking to a Scientologist, I don't say, hey, you're in Scientology and it's a cult. I say, hey, did you know that the Mormons are all about this whole weird, you know, community thing and this is this, these, these interviews that they do with kids and all the, and this kind of weird us versus them thing and you talk to them about how the, how this other group is a cult, which has obviously similar characteristics to Scientology, and you hope that they, you know, through the seed planting, you can connect. They'll start connecting some dots with their own cult experience. Similarly, if you have somebody who's in a relationship that you're concerned about, 
if you were to talk to them about some other relationship, even if it was a movie or a book or something um, that might have similar red flags or similar troubling concerns, right? You could bring that up. You could talk about those things and, and not necessarily directly connect those dots. You got to let them do that. Takes more time. It requires you be a little bit, you know, a lot more subtle about what you're doing. Um, it, you know, it is manipulative. I mean, let's acknowledge that. It is. So this is why the first thing you have to do is settle yourself to whether that's the right thing to do or not. Okay, so this is, you know, that, that's part of the consideration with this. If you're going to interfere with somebody's life and you're absolutely positive that you are in the right for doing so, then proceed, you know, but be willing to be at every single point along the line, be willing to be responsible and own what you have done. Um, because, it, you know, because it's on you in terms of uh, consequences uh, from all of that. Which is not to say you're 100% responsible for this other person and everything they do as a result of what you've done, but you, but you have to own that you're part of it. Okay. That is, that's, you know, I'm, I was talking very generalized here. I'm giving very broad advice. I, I, it's the best that I think I can do in response to your question, Kevin, because, um, because there, you know, because everything that I could say that might get more specific, I need more context of the situation, and and uh, and I I don't want to start making up answers for you. So I hope that this is helpful or useful advice in some way. This is how I approach stuff, and and um, and when I'm most successful at working with people or helping somebody else out, this is how I do it. So um, there you go, Laura Watts. We all know how damaging Scientology's controlling techniques are, especially the threats of disconnection. This has been prominent in the reporting on the Masterson case already, and more people will be made aware of this horrible policy going forward. Do you think that public awareness and perhaps some legal activity might force the church to change the policy somewhat? I don't know if you heard about the recent court ruling in Belgium that decided that shunning was a human rights issue and the JW Church had to pay damages. It's an interesting tack and focuses more on what the church does rather than what it believes. Is Scientology's disconnection policy so important to retaining members that the church will never, can never, let go of it? All right, Laura, thank you very much for this. And in a word, yeah, it is that crucial and vital that they maintain the power of disconnection or shunning with their members. You, a destructive cult is part of the characteristic of it is that it, it demands this us versus them, you know, it's our way or the highway kind of thinking. You, you have to be that on board with these groups. That's, that's, that's just part of the ingredients of the mix. And um, when you get a group that is not that, which is like, hey, easy come, easy go. You want to go? There's the door. We don't care. You know, we're here to help. If you want to be part of this, we're more than happy to have you here. We would value your, you know, like obviously they're going to want members. But if they, if it's an easy peasy, you know, sort of come and go, it's not really a destructive cult anymore, you know. Uh, so it would change the entire flavor, the entire tenor of Scientology would change overnight if they were to cancel the disconnection policy. But the iron grip that they keep over their members would be gone because disconnection and shunning is, the, is one of the primary tools that they can use to emotionally blackmail their members. You get a lot of mileage with this, lots and it's always hanging as a hammer over everybody's head, even if they don't acknowledge it. They, it's there. So, um, so no, Scientology. David Miscavige is not about to give up that power. He would have uh, it, it would it would cut the entire operation off at the knees. It's that it is that important. So no. Now, what they will do, though, here's what they can do. Rather than go in and change any of the Hubbard references or works on this. What they could do is they could, they could, if they wanted to, 
they could lessen the intensity with which they do their PTS handlings in the first place. And they could, you know, lessen the severity of like allowing people to look at stuff or talk or stuff like that. But again, they're not gonna. But they could. That would be a more... Uh, that would be a more realistic way that they might go about adjusting this, right? Is you have in Scientology, it's not zero to disconnection. There's a handling that's supposed to get done. If somebody's being a suppressive person or being, an, you know, a jerk or is not a not a good person for you to be connected to, there's a handle step where you you as the Scientologist figure out how to talk to or work with this person and get them to stop being so antagonistic or or giving you such a hard time, uh, whether it's about Scientology or anything else. But if it's about Scientology specifically, then you have to have that, hey, look, I'm a Scientologist. I know you're not, but you know, if you could just chill on the jokes and stop trying to deconvert me, I'd really appreciate it. Like if they, they would try to have that conversation first and they could work on that and work on that. The, the problem is that they they only have that conversation like once <laughs> and then, okay, disconnect. Okay, get rid of him. He's out of here. If even that, if they even bother to have the conversation at all, some people might just, yeah, screw it. You know, I'm not going to try to handle. I just want to disconnect. Well, you know, you can read Hubbard's directions on this a couple different ways. You can read it in a more lax, you can interpret it in a more lax, chill, okay, let's let's really work on this handling step. Let's really see if we can get your mom to come around or let's see if we can get your boss to stop being such a dick to you or something. You know, and really milk that thing and work it over. Maybe take months, you know, a year or something on some kind of a handling step. Um that's theoretically possible that they could do that, and that would result in less declares, less disconnection is, is where I'm going with that, um, because you'd have more people handling and, and kind of being more chill about it. But <laughs> that's not really going to happen. Um, the problem, of course, being that Scientology has been circling the wagons <laughs> And has been in defensive mode, and you know, and and the spears out, sort of with the the, the fouling, right, with all the spears. They're kind of like that, and they're and they're they're completely freaked out. Scientologists are completely freaked out right now about all the negative publicity and toxicity of Scientology's name. They they know Scientology's name is mud, and so they're just hunkered down, just trying to do their Scientology and not talk to people and all that. You know, because they don't want all the trouble. So it, it really creates so many double binds and problems for the Scientologists that, you know, they, they just want to ah, disconnect, disconnect. It's just easier uh, in the long run for them to just do that because they know how toxic it is out here. Um, the Sea Org don't know that, but the, but the public Scientologists do, and they're kind of caught in the middle. Right, so the Sea Org are the hardcore guys. They're the ones who are saying, "Nah, screw all those wogs. Forget those people. You don't have to be connected to those guys." You know, and so it, it it's just going to keep kind of rolling the way that it has been. Is is my prediction on that? Um, I don't think the church is going to until they are forced, forced through an external mechanism to change. They won't. Steve Wood. I have a question for you I've been meaning to ask for some time. In your opinion, what are the chances of a married couple remaining married if one becomes a Scientologist and the other does not? I'd be interested in your views on this as someone that I know has been married twice and originally the wives were not Scientologists but became so as I'm sure the husbands somehow talked them into this. With all the negative toxic information currently available, it does seem strange to me that anyone would willingly go along with this. As you know, non-Scientologists are fully aware of all the adverse publicity currently available. Or does the power of love supersede this? Ah, Steve. Actually, you hit it. You kind of nailed it there. And, and, and here's the funny thing about this, and the reason I wanted to answer this question and, and bring this up is because the power of love is extremely similar to what happens when somebody gets involved with a cult. They fall in love with a group and with its leader. It's, it's the same kind of chemical process in so many ways. Obviously not romantic love, but the feelings of euphoria, the, the neurochemicals, the, you know, the neurotransmitters in, in play, 
And all of that is so similar. And so are the feelings that come along with it, as well as the kind of emotional unbalancing that happens where this thing, this entity, this ideal, this this person or group becomes so much more than they really are. They, this, this adoration and fervor that the cult member or, or relationship member will feel when they are in love in the first early phases of it, the romantic phase, are uh, they're just stupefying. Uh, literally, they make people stupid, right? They, they, they make incredibly bad decisions. And, uh, and it's all emotion-based and, and trust goes, you know, appetite over a tin cup and everything just goes kind of, kind of, kind of, you know, crazy for a while. Anybody who's been in love understands what I'm talking about. Um, well, it's very similar getting into a cult too. So my point is here you have, you know, Joe and Bill, right? <laughs> and, or Joe and Sally and, uh, so Sally is, is you know, Joe's going to become a Scientologist. Joe is a Scientologist now, and he wants Sally to become a Scientologist. Well, Sally is madly in love with Joe and, uh, you know, and they're going to get married or they're, or they just recently were married or something. And so Joe's going to convince her pretty easily that, she, you know, that Scientology is something she should be part of or something she should do. It doesn't always work, but it works most of the time. I mean, hell, it even worked on Nicole Kidman and she really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, but, you know, she got all the way up to OT3 uh, with Tom Cruise. They very, very, very much encourage it. So can you have a situation where this is resisted or where this doesn't happen? Of course you can. Absolutely. Um, I've only seen it, though, um, once. <laughs> where a person was at the highest levels of Scientology, OT8. And her husband was not. And he was still a Christian, still attended Christian church. She went to Sunday service with him on Sundays, uh, which blew me away. I was like, what, really? I, as I was a Sea Org member at the time finding this out. This was a woman who was out in Minnesota in Twin Cities. So, um, so yeah, it can happen, right? And it can happen because of what I just said, as far as the whole love thing goes. And uh it's, it's kind of interesting and crazy watching human relationships happen when love gets involved. SV, in your last Q&A, you spoke about the question of deserving being in a cult. This brought to mind the question of whether any person deserves, quote unquote, contracting COVID or deserves dealing with the after effects of COVID. I'm asking for personal reasons. I have a family member who has been belligerent, even hostile, regarding mask wearing, social distancing, listening to scientists and doctors, etc. She contracted COVID last year and was extremely ill for a few weeks. Since then, she can no longer smell or taste. She still has doubled down that COVID is a conspiracy brought about by the Democratic Party in collusion with China. I'm having a very hard time being sympathetic with her, and honestly, I have felt like she deserved being so ill and she now deserves the after effects. Do you feel the same way about this situation? I.e., does no one deserve to suffer in this way? Just curious. I'm not proud of my feelings, and I'm trying to be more compassionate. All right, thank you very much for this question. This is a rough one, isn't it? It's tough. Um, because you do want to be compassionate. You do want to be empathetic even. You know, you wanna you wanna see the world through other people's eyes, you wanna understand how they're Viewing things, this is something I struggle with and work on all the time. Constantly thinking about this, putting myself in other people's shoes and looking at the world from their perspective, trying to understand and trying to therefore see what, how I might better relate with them or how, you know, we might be able to work things out where we have strong disagreements, even violent disagreements. Um, so I think this is why it has some use to try to figure this kind of stuff out. Now, <laughs> When I talked about people not deserving to be, you know, abused or, or you know, violently acted on, uh, gaslighted, etc., as part of being in a destructive cult, it's because no one signs up for that ever, right? They, they, they don't have informed consent before they get involved. You know, if, if, if you were to ask me whether a... Catholic or Christian monk 
up in some monastery up in the mountains deserves to be freezing all night because they don't have any central heating and the, and the windows are open or something and some storm comes through. And I don't know, you know, whatever. Does he deserve to be up there suffering? Well, yeah, because I know that the process of becoming a monk in a monastery is grueling and they tell you everything beforehand about what your life and schedule and, and the expectations and responsibilities are going to be before you get involved. You understand exactly what the conditions are going to be. You even live through the process for a little while. They give you, you know, a, a testing time, as I understand it. And, um, and maybe this isn't with every single monastery. I'm just saying, and it, you know, I've, I've heard about this and, and read about it. And they are actively discouraging people from trying to become part of it unless they are absolutely committed to the process. Now, the reason I bring this up is this sort of like, you know, where I'm going with this is that here is somebody who actually understands that they are entering into a life of servitude and abuse and punishment. And, and, they, and they want it. They embrace it. That, that is what I want to do. Good. Knock yourself out, right? Yeah, you deserve that. Because you asked for it, because that's and it was and it, and you were exposed beforehand to the whole thing, so you guys get my point. No one went into a cult situation expecting what happened to them. They didn't deserve that. Okay, so with COVID now, we have a couple different similar factors at play, right? Where you have a, an illness or disease that no one has a choice as to whether they are going to or are not going to contract a virus and whether that virus is going to, you know, ha what kind of havoc it's going to play with their immune system and with their body. That's all out of your hands. What you do have the power of choice over and the, and the power of control and responsibility for with yourself is what you do to protect yourself and protect other people. This is what health and safety guidelines are all about. And this is what the social contract is all about. So there are agreements that we all have entered into or were born into and understand through our civics classes in high school that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And we all rely on one another in order to get along. This social contract is not bullshit. This is a real thing. We all have this sort of unspoken agreement that we are going to get along and we're going to mutually help one another. And that's the way we've organized our society. And while we have our momentary ups and downs and tiffs with one another, we need to keep this these, these, the social contract very clearly in mind at all times. And a lot of people seem to think they're exempt from it or it doesn't apply to them or they don't have to pay attention to social guidelines and rules or the law or safety guidelines because it doesn't matter because they don't agree. Well, that ain't how society works and that's not how this contract works. And... That is where another factor comes into play here um, in, in this calculation of deserving, which is kind of the very fundamental factor of tit for tat, right? That This is one of the most essential equations of life is give and take, even exchange, back and forth. I do this, you do this. I do this, you do this. And we're even Stephen with one another. And if we're not even Stephen, you need to work or I need to work to make us even Stephen. Because that's how life operates. It's, it's so fundamental. You can break down almost every single moral argument down to this kind of a tit-for-tat equation. Um, are the, is there a balance? Have we found a balance? Has that been achieved? And when you have a bunch of people or an individual, let's say you're, this person you're talking about, this family member, stepping out... And violating all these rules, just to screw it. I don't have to do that. I'm not going to do that. I don't need to do that. None of that's important to me. I don't care about any of you people, right? Whether it's paying taxes, whether it's wearing a mask, whether it's following the law, whether it's driving properly, all of these things apply. These principles I'm talking about apply. This is how we're supposed to live our life. These are the supposed tos that we all live with. And when somebody steps out of and away from those supposed tos, they're stepping out of that equation of balance where, you know, I give, you give, I give, you give. They're like, no, I'm just taking and I'm not going to give anything. I'm just going to take and take and take and take because I deserve to be to have everything given to me or I deserve to have my way every time. Right. It's always my way. If it's not my way, it's the highway. Off you go. Right. That kind of person always 
pisses us off. It always rankles, right? Because they're violating the agreements and we're not, we're following it and they're not. What the hell? Right. And this is what gets us really ired up. And so when somebody, you know, then suffers the consequences of their actions, the direct, like you can draw a direct straight line between what they did and the consequence. They didn't wear a mask. They walked around breathing on other people or letting other people breathe on them carefree during a pandemic. <laughs> and, you know, and think that it's, it's, there's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. It does matter. People have died because of the irresponsibility of individuals that you're talking about. And so when they become the adverse effect of their own, you know, that when they suffer the consequences of their own actions, you know, we are like, yay. <laughs> and the reason that we feel that is that tit for tat, right? We're doing our part. They're not doing theirs. And so when they have adverse consequences as a result of not doing theirs, we call that justice, right? We call that karma. We call that fate. We got lots of words for this. Kismet, right? Uh, just rewards. They got what was coming to them. I'm sure there's millions of phrases and, and language for this, but it all comes back down to that tit for tat equation. So Having explained all of this moral philosophy of mine, <laughs> where I'm coming back down to is, yeah, I understand the righteous feeling of, of yeah, they deserved it, you know, and, and when you can trace it back to, you know, that person's actions, then yeah, they deserved it. They were fully informed of the consequences of their actions and they went ahead anyway. You know, and to the degree that people like that don't take responsibility, don't own their actions, don't accept the consequences of their actions, the tit for tat equation goes further and further out of balance, right? They're more and more irresponsible about it. They're less and less in agreement and in, in harmony with the rest of the group and what it's trying to achieve. So, um, so this is where they, where we get these div these divisions, where eventually they might, you know, like uh, just break away entirely, if we can't reel them in or deal with them and get them to see sense or sensibility or rationality. Um, so that's sort of my, you know, formulaic thinking kind of behind the picture of of what what's going on there in terms of why I would say, yeah, they kind of deserve it, you know. Um, and I don't say that from a from a, a position of harsh judgment either. I'm not mad at this at this person. I don't even know who this person is, right? Uh, that that uh, is being asked about in the question. I you know I have no idea. Um, so I can so from that distance I can sort of be a little bit more formulaic and less context specific. Maybe if I were to learn all the specifics and all the context of that particular individual situations, I might find reasons to excuse some of their behavior or might find reasons to mitigate my judgment of it, right? So, you know, individual perspective always is in play here and, and we can always moderate or mediate our position on this stuff. So I'm not trying to give absolute formulaic reasons to hate people here. I'm trying to explain the reasoning in my mind as to why it is that I would that I would say that yeah, people who violate health and safety rules and guidelines get what's coming to them, and I can't feel sorry for people who who go way out of their way to know better than trained professionals when it comes to our health. You know, I'm sorry, but I just can't really go there. You know, are doctors always right? Are epidemiologists always right? No, but they're more right about their profession, their profession and their professional expertise than you are. That's why they're the professionals and you're not. And this matters. You know, this stuff is important. So anyway, probably going on too much here, but that's my those are my thoughts on your on your question. I, uh, you know, I feel like I can feel compassionate and even empathetic towards somebody who 
contracts COVID, has after effects of it. I, I that sucks. I am not happy that that person is in that situation. It doesn't make me feel satisfied that that person contracted COVID or has after effects from it. Right? That's not what I mean when I say they deserve it. What I mean when I say they deserve it is they did things that make them responsible for that situation. They opened themselves up to it when they were told not to and given very good reasons not to. So there's a certain point along the line there where, yeah, it's on them. There you go. D.H., if I, a never-in who knows too much, were to go into a mission and ask for auditing, would I be able to get it? Or would I have to do the Dianetic Seminar or the Personal Efficiency Course or something before? I'm starting to find it hypocritical to criticize the auditing process without having had firsthand experience. Now, DH, you can go into any Scientology org or mission and start getting auditing right away. They'll be more than happy to sign you up. They would probably have you do a Dianetic Seminar. They'd want you to do that. But you can go in and buy professional auditing and just get started. Now, if you're honest and upfront with them about the fact that you've been listening to people like me, they're going to want to have a conversation with you about that because they're going to want to make sure you're not there to disrupt things or, or make trouble for them. And they're going to want to handle you on all the bullshit I've been telling you. <laughs> all right. So you might end up hearing about some of that. They're going to expect you to be honest with them about that. And there really isn't any reason why you shouldn't be. If you go in there, you know, lying to them and, and, and deceiving them, you're not really having the Scientology experience either. It is expected that you be honest. Okay, So, um, so I'm not saying don't go do that if you want to, but I am saying that I don't endorse that activity and I wish you wouldn't because I don't think you're going to particularly find anything useful or pleasant in the experience, but, you know, that's on you. All right, so that was our show for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to what I had to say here and blabbering on at a mad rate. I um, We did not do flash answers this week. I have a little idea in mind for perhaps a little surprise concerning uh, flash answers. I also wanted to throw something out. And let's see how many folks are listening all the way to the end of the show. I have an idea for a new kind of question on the show that I might do once a week or however often they come in which might be a stump Chris Shelton question. And this is an idea I had, and I wanted to know what you guys thought of it. If you can, you know, try to give me a question about Scientology that is super specific, super minutiae, super detailed, something about Scientology or um, Dianetics that might stump me, that I might not be able to answer. And there are questions people have asked me that I don't know the answer to, um, so I guess you could throw out questions like that. You know, sometimes I've had to do a little bit of research, but, um, but I thought, you know, let's see if, let's see if, uh, if you guys can send, send me questions. I just, I'm just like, oh man, I just don't know anything about that. Uh, anyway, wanted to see what you thought. Let me know in the comments section about that. And of course, any other feedback or constructive criticism you might have about the show or how I'm going about doing it. I am always, always open to hearing constructive criticism from you guys. I just don't want to be insulted in the process. All right. That all being said, thank you very much for coming around and watching, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.